Hey, Landon here. Episode 42 got a little long, but it's fantastic. So we've split it into two parts. Part one is going to be about ketamine dosing, procedural sedation, and pain control. And in part two, we're going to talk about intubation, behavioral control, the effects on physiology, and some of the trendy uses for it. So make sure you listen to both, and we know you'll enjoy our first guest speaker ever on the podcast. Hi, it's Landon. Hey, it's Monique. And we're kind of excited today. We're, we're not in my kitchen of knowledge, we're but in we a are. a different kitchen of knowledge. We are, definitely. And we have our very, very, very first guest, guest. speaker. Yep. Say hi. Hello. Wow. <laughs> uh, so we're honored today to have uh, Dr. Gary Andolfato on our podcast as our first ever guest. Gary, why don't you tell us a little bit? We're going to talk about ketamine today and tell us why you are interested in ketamine and kind of what your deal is with ketamine awesome we'd be happy to first of all thanks very much always fun to see you guys well thank you ketamine is far and away my most favorite drug <laughs> drug not, of choice not just recreationally <laughs> <laughs> but uh no we use ketamine on a daily basis i don't think there's been a day that's gone by in the past 15 years where i haven't used ketamine so we use it for all sorts of things from analgesia sedation agitation control, you, you name it. Um, I got interested in using ketamine really because I, be, I became an accidental researcher about 15 years ago where um, we were looking for different ways of sedating people and we, um, we thought it might be a good idea to start mixing ketamine and propofol together and started playing around with that and found it worked really well. And then when I went to look at you know, what literature there was on that subject, I realized there was none. And so that's how I first became a researcher with ketamine, was actually in the sedation field where we were mixing ketamine and propofol together for ketafol. After that, I realized that ketamine is just a really, really interesting drug and became more fascinated with different ways of using it. And we eventually came to the point where I kind of thought that we're doing sedation pretty well and there was, there was less to gain in the sedation field. And Analgesia was something we did really, really poorly. So I thought there was more to gain by focusing on analgesia. And so with my experience with ketamine and the poor experience we were having with analgesia, I thought the two went well together, which has really been the case. So that's where I've become really a ketamine researcher more than a ketafol researcher these days. Excellent. And More it, like the ketamine guru, I think. Yeah, in our, in our minds. In our minds. Guru. I was once coined as the godfather. <laughs> well, um, you are Italian, uh, so, yeah, so the uh, godfather <laughs> should be the appropriate thing. But I think if anybody has read anything on ketamine research, you will have seen Dr. Gary Andefato's name on a lot of those research papers. And we'll probably put a lot of that on our website so that you can look at those links. Totally. Um, I think we probably have some questions, and you probably have a way of getting to all the points that you want to make about ketamine. And so maybe we should start with you talking about doses. Dosing. I think that that's probably the easiest Because I know that where, where this all came from was we, we came to your presentation at the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians Conference, and you just had a way of making the ketamine dosing uh, a reality for me that Mm -hmm. a light bulb came on and that's when I turned to Monique and said he has to be on our podcast and so why don't you tell us about ketamine dosing 
and the ranges and uh, in the way that you do so that because uh, it was really clear for me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's a, it's, that's a great way to start because because with ketamine, it's all about the dose. And ketamine is really particular that way that it behaves differently depending on the dose you pick. And that's really the special thing about ketamine. And so what I always tell people is that when you're going to use ketamine, what you need to have in your mind is a clear idea of what you're trying to achieve. Because what what you're trying to achieve determines the dose that you're going to pick. Knowing the dosing ranges is, is the easy part. The difficult part is for people to be organized about their intent. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, if I walk up to a patient and I want to... I just want to provide some analgesia. Mm -hmm. Then I know I'm going to pick a certain dose of ketamine, which which will be the low dose. Whereas if I walk up to a person and say, I want this person completely unconscious so I can reduce their fracture, I know that I'm going to pick a high dose of ketamine. And so so dosing is a great structure to start on. So I guess starting from the bottom up, ketamine is an analgesic. That has been well established. And it's analgesic in very, very low doses. When you look at human studies, doses as low as 0.1 milligrams per kilogram. There are human studies on that dose, mm-hmm. and no question that it does provide analgesia. When you see people using it in the ED, the usual analgesia range is anywhere from 0.1 to 0.5 milligrams per kilogram. When you get above 0.5, that's when people start to become disconnected from reality. Um, and that's where ketamine gets its name, as a, it's called a dissociative anesthetic. Mm-hmm. Basically, you're disconnecting the brain from people's external reality. And when you get up to half a milligram per kilogram, that's when that disconnection really starts to manifest itself. So low dose, under 0.5. Then high dose is considered above 1.0. So that's when people start to become fully disconnected. And so when you're using ketamine as a general anesthetic, and it is a general anesthetic in high doses, you're talking about doses of one milligram per kilogram and above. So that's considered high-dose ketamine. So low dose under 0.5, high dose over 1.0 are the two zones where you really want to operate. So there's a a middle ground there, the 0.5 to 1, (laughs) and and I I think you have an opinion on. I've intentionally left the middle ground for last. Because the middle zone is the minefield. That's where you don't want to be stepping. Mm-hmm. This is where ketamine gets its bad reputation because people are partially disconnected, you know, partially connected, partially disconnected, and you really have very altered perceptions of reality. Now, lots of times that's quite enjoyable. In fact, that's... <laughs> that's the party drug, right? That's yeah, the party right. drug zone. And so, so a lot like you know, ketamine's parent drug, which is PCP, angel dust, so when people had their acid trips in the 60s, well, do people still have acid trips? I don't think I, I so. I don't think so. Monique yeah. probably knows. She remembers <laughs> that because she was alive then. Thank and, you. Uh, Not at all. She was at, at all the raves nursing them all back to health. <laughs> with yeah, lantern. back in the 60s. Florence That's right. Florence with her lantern. <laughs> you were, did you go to school with Jimi Hendrix? Yes, I did, actually. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Monique's, Monique knows Florence, <sighs> and uh, that was well in our podcast for Would many times. Would you stop that? With amazing. So the acid amazing. trip. I'm, PCP. Just yeah. so you know, I'm sitting between them to keep the first steps to minimum. <laughs> exactly. So, but anyway, the middle zone. That's mm. where people can have a good trip or a bad trip. And most people, to be honest, actually do have a good trip. Mm-hmm. That's why it's such a popular drug. But the people who have a bad trip 
the trips are so bad yeah. that everyone remembers it for the rest of their lives. And then this is where the stories of these horrible trips with ketamine come because these really horrible things, although they're relatively rare, they're so profound that everyone in the room, everyone in the building, sometimes everyone yeah. within you know, 500 yards you know, hears about this big reaction. And that's where ketamine gets its fearsome reputation. So it's a bit overblown in terms of you know, statistically the likelihood of it to happen. But if it does happen to you, you will never forget it. So it's nice to avoid it. And there's, n and there's no utility to, be in the, to being in the middle ground because mm -hmm. we're either providing analgesia in the low zone or we want the person fully sedated in the high zone. Can I ask you a question? Because I'm sure some of the nurses will want to know that. Is there, in that middle zone, because it is a party drug, is there an addictive piece of it that people become? I, I guess it's with like anything that you're addicted to. If you have an addictive personality that happens, then I likelihood that you'll yeah. continue to do that. Yeah, so, so ketamine, it doesn't cause addiction in the same way, for instance, in mm -hmm. opiate well. Like, you don't get a withdrawal syndrome right. if you stop taking ketamine. But other than the you know, psychological addiction right. to, to that feeling, yeah. um, then it, so it's not truly addictive physiologically, though I suppose it would be the experience would be addictive mentally. Right, yeah. Is that where that emergent... In that middle zone. Yeah, <laughs> in exactly. In middle zone, yeah. And that's where that emergent reaction, I think everybody's worried about, happens, mm -hmm. is it? Exactly, yeah. So, so here's where you have to be careful about your dosing. So if you're providing analgesia... Mm -hmm. Like I mentioned before, the analgesic zone is below 0.5 milligrams per kilogram. What I recommend to people is if you're using it for analgesia, you actually want to go lower than that. Okay. Because people, because everyone's, everyone's an individual and some people will get into that middle zone at 0.5 milligrams per kilogram. Okay. So as, as years have gone by and people have become more experienced with using ketamine for analgesia, we found that cutting the dose down, mm -hmm. you still get a solid analgesic effect and you minimize those adverse effects, you know, the, the partial dissociation. So I actually recommend a starting dose of 0.2. Okay. Um, people commonly use, commonly use 0.3. Um, and there's even been studies comparing 0.3 to, you know, to lesser doses like 0.15 mm -hmm. and 0.2. And you get a slightly better analgesic effect, but still pretty similar. But the number of adverse effects are much, much less. Mm -hmm. So I think the magic, you know, the magic dose uh, for analgesia. I think I think the most logical starting dose is 0.2. Yeah. Okay. Because that's where you're going to get a good solid analgesic effect, and you're going to minimize the amount of adverse effects. You still get adverse effects. They're just not a big deal. So when we use ketamine, then we use it intranasally as well as intravenously for analgesia. Mm -hmm. Everyone, everyone, about 25% of people will get a noticeable adverse effect. You know, that 25% is about the same as you get when you use morphine, okay. the adverse effect rate. So I tell people that adverse effects are not any more common than if you use opiates. It's just that they're different. And that's mm -hmm. where people seem to have an uncomfortableness with ketamine. Mm -hmm. You know, if you give someone an opiate and they throw up, you go, oh, that's just the opiate. And mm -hmm. we're all comfortable with that because we grew up with giving opiates and everyone knows what to do and no one gets bothered by it. But you give someone a dose of ketamine, they get dizzy. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, ooh, yeah, it's ketamine. Oh my God, it's a terrible drug, and yeah. I think it's just a familiarity thing. So I think as the years go by, we're going to become more and more used to the side effects that happen with ketamine. They're just different than what we see with opiates. When you use it at low doses, the number one thing is people get this what they call a feeling of unreality, or mm -hmm. they'll they'll say dizzy. They'll just feel weird, mm -hmm. and the effect. And I've actually had low dose ketamine for analgesia mm -hmm. due to a uh, 
relatively recent orthopedic for, misadventure. For a clinical reason, <laughs> not research. Not, yes. Yeah, though it led to more research. Yeah, mm-hmm. but, uh, that's a, that's a different the heroic survival story. Yeah, different podcast. A different podcast. Yeah. So the effect is much like you would have if you you know went for a bike ride, came mm-hmm. home, sat on your back deck, back deck, and drank half a beer. Okay. Where I I describe it to people as saying, you know, I might I'm not going to jump behind the wheel of my car because mm-hmm. I'm feeling just a little tipsy, mm-hmm. but I'm feeling together enough that I wouldn't be bothered to sign checks so okay and that's the experience that people have with that low dose of ketamine something's going on here i'm feeling dizzy lasts about 20 minutes goes away Mm -hmm. you do not get into any of these weird hallucinations and flashbacks and things that the stories that people hear about and the other bad effects that people fear about ketamine like you know laryngospasm and hypersalivation the things that are the subject of horror stories Never happens in low dose. Yeah. It just can't happen. So it just if I can jump in. So when you say low dose and you're talking 0.2 milligrams per kilogram, that's IV bolus. Excellent point. And that not is, that infusion, is, right? That is the IV dose. When we're talking intranasal administration, because the absorption is about 50%, you just double everything. So Okay. So if I gave 0.4 milligrams per kilogram of ketamine intranasally, I'd get about the same effect as if I gave 0.2 milligrams IV. Okay. And if I had someone, say, with a femur fracture, and you're saying this lasts for about 20 minutes, am I giving this every 20 minutes? Or is it no, sort of the, the dizziness goes away, and then the pain control is for a longer period? Exactly right. And this is um, this actually relates to my personal orthopedic misadventure, <laughs> which, which was a fractured femur, actually. That's why I picked that, maybe. <laughs> maybe so, yeah. It, yeah, it was a femur, but it was very, very proximal on the femur. Some people might call it a hip. Mm-hmm. But that that's an but old... because no, no. you're so you young, you weren't old enough yet to be a hip fracture. Yeah. Exactly. You've said that before. Exactly. The only <laughs> difference between a femur and a hip fracture is, is your age. age. Exactly. <laughs> no, so so the side effects last about twenty minutes, and then but the analgesic effect lasts two to three hours. Okay. Wow. And and this actually relates to even my personal experience with intranasal ketamine, where I had intranasal ketamine alone with nothing else. And had very solid analgesia while I was waiting for surgery for, for two to three hours before I needed anything else. Okay. Although the side effects, they go away in 20 minutes okay. reliably. Well, that's, that's great to know because I know we, we when we use it in higher doses, it's kind of you're asleep for 15 to 20 mm-hmm. minutes, then you wake up. But it's good to know that that pain control lasts more than just that 20 minutes. Yeah, and, that, and that's part of the reason we started using it um, as part of our sedation Regime. There's a number of reasons we use ketamine. And as usual with our podcast, the garbage truck is coming by. No matter where we go in this world. I think it's following us. And do our really. podcast. The garbage truck always comes by while we're Around recording. this time. Anyway, you, always, you, you always do this on garbage day? I Apparently think we, we must do. do. And, it, and we're here on different days, too. Different and day, it doesn't different, matter. We're even in different a different city. location. <laughs> Exactly. So really the philosophy to me is what you're saying is we should start low and go slow. If you're using it for analgesia, yes. So start low, go slow. And because it's um, milligrams per kilogram, it shouldn't make any difference if it's peds or adult. That is completely correct. Okay. So That's helpful, I think, for us. Yeah. Yeah. The the only difference between pediatrics and adults is Mm -hmm. that the pediatric... population is much more resistant to the adverse effects. 
Ah, uh, the garbage truck will be gone in a moment. Okay. Now we're going to hear the beeping as she turns around <laughs> at the end of the road. But... Well, I don't I don't think they ever beep. Uh, yeah. No? Okay. Is this where we make a joke about this is actually Monique's other vehicle? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks very much. Yeah. Yeah, so when you're using it in pediatrics, your, your freedom from adverse effects is even greater because the pediatric brain, for reasons I'm not sure of, is more resistant to the adverse effects. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah, so ketamine is always more of a concern in adults. Okay, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. All right. So Perfect. that's low dose. Low dose. So let's talk high dose. Yeah. High dose ketamine. Yeah. I love high dose ketamine. <laughs> did, did I tell you I've also had high dose ketamine? <laughs> with, no. With for your orthopedic yeah. no, misadventure? Because it's not true, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> you don't, or you don't remember anyway. <laughs> so it would be for high dose we were saying we're for general anesthetic. So the difference between conscious sedation and using it as an intubation, maybe we should talk about those two things. Sure. Yeah. Although no, nobody ever calls it conscious, conscious sedation. sedation. Excuse no. me. Yes. Yes. That's, Monique. Think... that's Monique being what, Yuri? She's Don't... being... Oh, that's old terminology. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it is old terminology. It is. Procedural sedation. Procedural sedation. Yeah, so I usually say, let's do, I will not do conscious sedation, but I'm happy to do some unconscious sedation. Okay, right. fine, fine, fine. So, but, look, so ketamine in high dose is a very useful drug when you want to achieve complete control of your patient very quickly. And that's, that's where ketamine might actually be the best drug in existence, I think, to achieve that. Because nothing can get complete control of your patient quite as quickly and keep them breathing at the same time. Mm-hmm. So, and that's a, that's a big high note there on this drug is no matter what we're doing, they should still be breathing. They and, if, and if they stop breathing, it's not the ketamine that stopped them breathing. It's almost never. Yeah. Oh, almost never. Almost there's be never. A, there's, gonna, there's a little star at the end of that <laughs> sentence that we'll hear about at some point. There's always an asterisk to yes. everything. <laughs> totally. So ketamine, if you give a high dose of ketamine intravenous very quickly, it's well known that people can stop breathing transiently okay but no one ever has to do anything about it they'll just start again okay so so those people that tell you i gave a i saw a ketamine being given and they stopped breathing well sure it can happen but the ketamine itself will only cause that transiently and nothing needs to be done about it it's usually has more to do with the population you're dealing with usually the reason we're using high dose ketamine is because you've got a sick unstable patient in front of you and bad things just happen to sick, unstable people. And giving ketamine doesn't change that. You know, bad things still happen. Right. Mm-hmm. So, but to backtrack just slightly, um, so achieving full control. So ketamine is great for it because you can give it IV, mm-hmm. you can give it IM, and both are extremely rapid. IV, you'll get complete control in under a minute, whereas IM, you can get complete control in under five minutes. And there's really no drug will support the blood pressure like ketamine does, keep breathe people breathing like ketamine does, and achieve rapid control that quickly. I don't think another drug exists. And that's why I think ketamine is tailor-made for, for that kind of use. So we use it pretty commonly. Um, you, you mentioned sedation. So for sedation, we'll use, we can use ketamine by itself, and that's very, very effective. Because you get complete analgesia, you get complete amnesia, mm-hmm. um, you get complete control of your patient, and you can do anything to them. In fact, it's the most used anesthetic worldwide when you look strictly by numbers. In, in, 
in austere environments, third world countries, they have no monitors, they have no mm -hmm. other drugs, they don't even have SAT probes. Right. And they do general surgery under ketamine alone routinely. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's cases, like tens of thousands of cases, the safety profile is remarkable with no monitors. We're of course very blessed with all our monitoring capabilities and things like that. So, so if we're doing a procedural sedation, it's small potatoes. And you can do anything with ketamine alone. Now, I almost never use ketamine by itself for sedation for one reason only, and that is it lasts too long for what I want sedation-wise. By mixing it with propofol, we can get the same type of total control, keep them breathing, and we have a duration of 10 minutes as opposed to a duration of 45 to 60 minutes. And that's way better for you know departmental flow. So that's really the... So are you giving less of a dose then because you're mixing it with propofol? Exactly. Or is it that the propofol makes it not last as long? No, you're giving a lesser dose. So you're giving less. Okay. So And this is something we actually proved with, when we did our randomized double-blind trial, is you do achieve the exact same sedation depth using half doses of propofol and ketamine combined together. So it, it, the two drugs really are synergistic. Okay. So And this is some, an argument I had with so many sedationists who refuse to believe that you could use sub-anesthetic sub doses of two drugs with completely different mechanisms mixed together and achieve the same depth of sedation. And we, are, we, and we basically prove that you can. Okay. So we're using half the dose of propofol that we would normally use mm -hmm. compared to what if we were using propofol alone, half the dose of ketamine that we would normally use compared to if we use ketamine alone, mix them together in the same syringe, you get the exact same depth of sedation, much shorter recovery time. And, and for me, that's, that's one, of the, one of the two big advantages of using ketafol over ketamine, shorter recovery time. The other big advantage is that profol being a good sedative, it actually naturally counterbalances those adverse effects that people don't like. Right. Because so giving half-dose ketamine, you're almost in that we-never-want-to-be-here zone dosing anymore, right? You can get there, yes. Right, but the propofol will take yeah. that. So if you use ketamine and you're in that middle zone accidentally, someone gets an adverse reaction, what do you do? You just give them a sedative. Right. And then you wait it out, ketamine levels drop and everything's fine. So propofol is a sedative. So by using propofol together, we found that the, those that adverse event rate is you know cut down by an order of magnitude. Like only a tenth of the people that would have had an adverse reaction do when you use the propofol along with the ketamine. Okay. The other big advantage is that propofol is actually been shown to be a really strong antiemetic. And one of the adverse effects people don't like about ketamine is that people look you know, nausea and vomiting. It's one of the things that detracts from its use. And guess what? When you use propofol with your ketamine, the, uh, the nausea vomiting rate goes way, way down. In fact, the effect has been shown to be equivalent to the effect we get with, get with ondansetron. Mm. So if you're using, doing a ketamine sedation in child and especially in an adult, and you want to lessen the chance of an adverse event, not have them vomit, just... Give them a little propofol. Give them a little propofol. Because you're giving half doses of propofol, do you find the hypotension or the blood pressure impact is less? 100%. Okay. Yeah. That, is, that has also been well established. Physiologically, we know that when we, when we give ketafol, like ketamine propofol, and you can give it single syringe or separate syringe, right. and quite, quite honestly, I use both. Right. I think I think they work equally well. It just depends how you like to give it. But using ketamine and propofol together, blood pressures will tend to go up. Okay. Without a question. Now, does that matter? 
is where the debate is. Mm. And in the when when you and that's a problem with some a lot of the studies when we look at this is when you look at the general population like everyone we sedate blood pressures go up a bit compared that to propofol alone we don't see much of a difference because we're doing we're generally sedating pretty healthy people like mm. they don't have a lot of baseline morbidity the, and the ones that do there's there's not many of them and so if I gave propofol to you your blood pressure will go down but it doesn't matter because then it'll just come back up again right. Mm -hmm. But if I was to say sedate someone really old, I'm not looking across no, the table. No, of course for any not looking at me. <laughs> if you got pneumonia and needed to be intubated, <laughs> don't let them just give me propofol alone. <laughs> I'm sensing that might not be what we want to do. Yes. No, but seriously, um, say in an older person with a bad heart, mm -hmm. this is where using propofol alone has been known to really get you in the weeds. Like blood mm. pressure can crash. Like mm. when we're talking code status crash. And it can be very, very difficult to get them back. This is where using ketamine along with the propofol is a huge advantage because that blood pressure support will keep them from crashing. It'll keep you out of the weeds. So no one's done that. You know, no one's ever done a you know double blind randomized study. You know, randomized to these little people, little old ladies with bad hearts. Right. We're gonna mm -hmm. sign this consent form. We're gonna see if we, we can kill you with we, propofol. We might kill you with propofol. Yeah. Exactly. So no one, I don't think everyone, anyone will ever do that definitive study. But there are large series um, of using it in older adults for um, for sedation and all sorts of other things, and you find that it's perfectly safe. Okay. I think one of the things that I probably have a personal biased against is using propofol alone because it doesn't have an analgesic effect at all. So if you're using a procedural sedation for reducing something that's broken, I find it really difficult because you're catching, once they come out of the propofol, they're in so much pain that I find using both anecdotally for me, caring for the patient is so much more humane than propofol alone. I don't uh, know. You, you've touched on a subject near and dear to my heart. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Oh, yes. Good. And that wasn't even scripted. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would agree with you completely. Yeah. But then I will also tell you, I'm not sure if it's true. Okay. And I'll tell you why. This is, this is something that's of great interest to me. So when I started using propofol as a sedation drug, I, I really felt bad because mm -hmm. pro propofol is not an analgesic and yet we're doing something painful to people mm -hmm. and so i said to myself if i'm going to do something painful i want to give them a painkiller because that makes me feel better i feel right. like i'm doing the right thing mm -hmm. and so for years we added propofol and fentanyl together right combined the opiate because that made me feel better there was those that argued you know the person doesn't remember what happened to them and they wake up does that does the pain matter if they don't remember it? Right. That's a very interesting subject, and it gets really quite complex because we know it does matter mm -hmm. when you do surgery. Yeah. There's this thing called the surgical stress response. Um, it's well known that if you do general surgery on someone who's completely at the deep in the deepest state of anesthesia, if you do not provide an analgesic, mm -hmm. even though they're completely unaware and completely unresponsive, they will do worse later. They have more hospital days, more pain, and even a higher mortality. So that is true. And so people have said, that's what happens during surgery. But is that still true in the short procedures that we do in the emergency department? Mm -hmm. To me, it was logical. Yeah. Um, and so I thought, well, it probably does matter. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I was providing analgesia. 
And then someone actually tried to look at that question in emergency department sedation. A guy by the name of Jim Miner, who uh, is one of the who's who of sedation research, he did a study where he gave people um, just propofol mm -hmm. and did orthopedic procedure. And then he gave other people propofol along with an opiate. And as a measure of stress, he measured cortisol levels, like cortisol levels every... You know, every few minutes they did mm -hmm. blood samples measured, essentially, you know, what kind of adrenaline response is this patient having? Mm -hmm. And they found that there was really no difference in the people that they gave the opiate to compared really? um, when, when they actually were doing the procedure. So adding an opiate did not seem to decrease the amount of stress. That the body actually, felt. Let, let me reverse that. Not giving an opiate didn't decrease the amount of stress the patient felt during that really brief procedure. Mm. The only time that patients exhibited more stress was when they became hypoxic. Oh, really? Which is very interesting because mm. now I'm, I've decided I want to be a good person and I want to give a painkiller, an opiate, to this person I'm giving propofol to. So I've just doubled down on my respiratory depressants. On the hypoxia yeah. equation. So by making myself feel better, yeah. I've increased the chance that my patient is going to become hypoxic. I'm actually, in the process of making myself feel good about myself, I'm actually putting the person at higher risk. Oh, interesting. interesting. And that just drove me crazy. It drove me crazy now. And, and then now I, you don't know what to do. Now I don't know what to do. Well, now I do. Now but, it's the future I, of his research career. <laughs> <laughs> but this is where... For me, the answer came to using ketamine right. yeah. with the propofol. Exactly. So now I can provide an analgesic mm -hmm. without doubling down on that respiratory depression. Yeah. So for me, this no one really knows the answer to the question, does an analgesic matter yeah. during the time of the procedure? No one for sure knows the answer to that question. So, so I think if I can still make myself feel better because it is logical and no one yeah. knows the answer one way or the other. So right. it's not wrong, no. but we don't know if it's right. But if I give them an analgesic using ketamine, I know I can provide that analgesia without causing an increase in respiratory depression. Right. And so we can achieve, I think, the best of both worlds. Because it is true that after our things we do, that after the procedure... It's painful. It's very painful. Yeah. The two classic procedures are would be a fracture reduction yeah. and incision and drainage, where, yeah. right. where after you're done, this person might have as much or maybe even more pain than when you started. This is where I think ketamine is perfect. Yeah, I agree. Right. Because yeah. it's going to carry through after procedure and decrease the level of pain. Yeah. But say for a cardioversion where the pain is instant and gone right away. Exactly. There, right. there wouldn't be that need. Exactly. And this is a circumstance where even I've gone back to using propofol. Just propofol. Yeah. Right. But cardioversion is the only one. Yeah. Because it's so brief. Yeah. Um, they really don't have pain afterwards. And I think that's perfectly logical because, you know... Really, is for department flow. So yeah, and I think that general, that's what something. Yeah. But I think that that's something you and I, Landon, have talked a, a lot about with nurses is understanding the why and the purpose of what you're doing really helps to advocate the best for your patient and to also speak to your physician in a knowledgeable way about saying, well, this might hurt a lot. Do you think that just giving propofol for this mm -hmm. fracture reduction? I'm wondering if we could give some ketamine as well, because once you leave, this patient's going to be in a lot of pain. So having that real professional discussion at the bedside about the choices of the um, analgesic sedation that you use and the purpose for why you're doing it. And I think coming in with knowledge and having that discussion is so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
30 seconds before the procedure is going to start might not be the best no, time. No, absolutely. <laughs> no, always pre, preemptively. That's right. Doctors, yeah. doctors love being questioned right before they go. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. That's their that, favorite right? thing. Yeah. But I do think it is something that if yeah. we're having planning, right? Like we always yeah. plan for it. So what's the best thing to get everybody at the bedside and that let's talk about this and all of yeah, those but, kind of things, right? But, but any doctor I know and respect would, would be very open to... to to having a discussion and absolutely and this is where you know having some resources or you know mm-hmm. at your fingertips or online is really great because people love reading about that stuff and even even if they have to mm-hmm. think about it right at that moment yep. you plant a seed of something that someone's going to think about later yeah you bring that up for departmental discussion this is this is how change happens and right. it can happen absolutely. positively that way yeah so absolutely it's, so it's not a it's not a questioning it's more of a more of a discussion yeah. yeah, professional dialogue. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. No, Imagine that professional dialogue at the bedside. There's, hmm. no, there's no egos at the bedside, is there? <laughs> never. I don't think I, so. I've never encountered that. <laughs> hey, folks, this is the end of part one. Make sure you listen to part two. For past episodes and to comment on this episode, please visit our website at nursum.org. That's N U R S E M dot O R G. You can follow us on Twitter at NursumCast and also find us on Facebook at Nursum Podcast. We look forward to your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Remember, before incorporating anything new into your work, ensure you are supported by your own scope of practice, workplace policies, and your own knowledge and comfort. The Nursum Podcast is brought to you by PRN Education, www.prneducation.ca.